0: Welcome to Top Score from Classical Minnesota Public Radio. I'm Emily Reese. Batman Arkham City picked up nine nominations from BAFTA Games recently, including one for original music. Composer Ron Fish contributed heavily to both Batman games, Arkham City and Arkham Asylum. Ron also worked on all three God of War games and wrote all the music for Sega's Rise of Nightmares. Thank you for being on the show. It's great to have you here.
1: My pleasure being here.
0: Good. So, you just finished, um, maybe not just finished, but have recently wrapped up working on Batman Arkham City, and you also worked on Arkham Asylum. But I want to hear what that was like for you to work on.
1: Uh, well, initially, um, I was contacted by Nick um, Arundel, who was the audio director at Rocksteady, who's the developer. Um, he had actually listened to some tracks as I was submitted as a uh, composer, amongst others. Mm -hmm. And apparently he, something about whatever I wrote or whatever he had heard that I had written that he was impressed with, Um, then he called me back and asked me uh, to send some of the scores over. Uh, And then I got a call four or five months later. And I already thought that job was done and never would come back or something. And five months later, I hear from Nick saying, you know, I'd like to talk to you at further depth about this job, and I had really listened to Batman when I was a kid, and it was that da 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 da. Everybody knows that theme, right? And I used to collect uh, Batman comics when I was a kid. But this was all of a sudden. Just jump ahead. I had o- obviously seen Tim Burton's version of the world of Batman, which was pretty kind of cool, dark, dreary, mm-hmm. and Burton-esque. Of course. Heard Elfman's score, as everybody, you know, would obviously be hearing Elfman's score if you're all at all interested in soundtracks. Then that seemed to go into a little bit uh, weird world there with uh, Mr. Freeze and um, you know a few other iterations that got a little bit off track, I think. And then um, shortly thereafter, Christopher Nolan took it over, and that's when it got interesting again for me. Kind of, like, those scores that came out of that. That was, you know, Hans Zimmer, obviously, and James Newton Howard. So, they're both great, great composers in their own rights, and very different is their approaches. But I had really not paid that much attention to it. So, when I got a call to try to do this, um, I, we had a nice conversation, Nick and I, about what's the approach. And uh, to my surprise, Nick didn't say, okay, we're going to be doing Elfman takeoff, so we're going to be doing a Zimmer takeoff, or we're going to be doing takeoff of James Newton Howard. We're not taking off of anybody. We'll do some of those string ostinato lines, but we're going to do our own game. First time that we actually went through Asylum, it was mostly the cinematics that I was going to be working on. Um, so I scored those. And what was nice about that was um, Nick really had a clear idea of what he wanted from it. So he could guide me in an artistic fashion, but also he can give me clear rules as to what we're trying to accomplish in a musical sense, because obviously he's a composer also. Mm-hmm. That always helps me uh, when somebody can tell me this is what we want from it as opposed to, I think, a little bit more wooden and blue.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah.
1: You know, when a person can say, "I don't a- let the A minor move that you're making to," I'd rather go to like a C uh, major, maybe or possibly let's go, uh, you know, a minor third instead of the minor third. Let's crawl up minor thirds all the way to anything like that. It really gives me a much better idea of what we're going to try to accomplish. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and probably all composers have been through every kind of. Uh, supervisor ranging from the absolutely dumbfounded to really critical and understand exactly what it is they're trying to accomplish. Yes. In doing Asylum, you know, after I did a a couple of these cinematics, uh, Nick was really pleased with how I was filtering his vision through how I write. So we kind of hit a, a nice sweet spot and just continued working on it, you know, with some revisions always. But Moving forward at a steady pace, um, at some point it became very clear that uh, maybe some of the uh, boss battles would be, should be handled uh, by myself. I think it was more of a case of just too much for one guy to do over there, and yep. so he gave me that to do. I have a tendency to write very active, very um, nonlinear writing uh, styles, so, and it's usually action-packed and very quick, and, and I was doing that for God of War before I ever did this for Arkham. And so when I did those tracks, he was, like, very pleased with those, so I got to do the Boss tracks and um, then some downloadable content. And uh, we, you know, we finished it up. We got nominated for pretty much every kind of award there, which was very uh, satisfactory. I mean, we felt great about it. And when it time came around again to do the sequel, it just seemed to be a logical choice to just continue on as we'd done for Asylum. ¶¶
0: bit about this process of having uh, multiple composers on a game, because this is something that I've actually never directly addressed in, in an episode of Top Score, but it's something that is very common.
1: In my, uh, my past experiences with that, I very much enjoy taking on a certain aspect of a game uh, with my own voice of how I approach music, and then trying to hit it out of the ballpark, as they say. It only really works if there's someone there Uh, within the company, who really understands how to knit together a crazy quilt of different composers. Yes. But that it doesn't sound like, oh, here's obviously Ron. Oh, there's got to be Bob. Yeah. It it still has to stay together as as one collective piece of music. Mm -hmm. So it becomes a very important aspect that the music supervisor or audio director is capable of handling all this. Not only is it more complex for him because he has to talk to two three four five whatever how many composers are working on it Mm -hmm. he has to make sure that they all are understanding exactly how are they working and let's say we have for instance a usage of some sample set if i'm using a certain sample set and that ends up being in my tracks then it becomes like a signature to my tracks but the other guy bob for instance doesn't have those same sample sets Mm -hmm. then all my music ends up sounding somewhat like what i've composed Bob ends up sounding like what he's composed. And then let's say you go to a, an orchestra at the end and then you combine what we've all done. But yet there's sample sets that you may not have uh, shared amongst each other. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting aspect of all this thing. If the end product is to sound like one. Uh, in God of War, of course, there was many composers, as we all know. Yes. Each person had their own strengths, in my opinion. And a top-down approach would be uh, Clint Bajekin and Jonathan Mayer over at uh, Sony um, SCEA. Mm-hmm. A particular Clint was on this thing really from the get-go. So basically, he would uh, assign the assignments. He would give each composer, you know, you really got this down. You do this to the utmost. You do that to the max. Great. Mm-hmm. So that's how that was particularly broken out. The how each person did whatever they did, and listening to other composers sometimes we did, sometimes we didn't, you know, whatever it was. Mm-hmm. But, um, my generally what I was given to do would be either these bombastic, brutal combat tracks, <laughs> which seems to be my signature. My <laughs> tracks tend to be very dark in nature and atmospheric. If I can get away with it, I love it, or very combat like, like you know, Zeus, Pandora and uh, Tartarus and Hades and Hell and Black and
0: mm-hmm. that kind mm-hmm. of
1: stuff. That's, that's I guess, where I lived in that particular game. So, you know, after the first iteration, there was at least, it took a while to get to that first time through. The first God of War was like, oh, let's try this, let's try that. I went through all kinds of stuff. Um, second time around, because it was a hit, we knew what we were doing. So it was a matter of expanding that. And then third time around, I think uh, pretty much everybody that was in the group of composers knew exactly what they were supposed to do. You know, we had already gotten into a comfort zone, as it were. So it wasn't even that much cross-pollination of ideas. We just went ahead and did whatever we did, and then we actually recorded the whole thing at Skywalker and over in Prague. It It was a great experience of recording it.
0: often because asking one person to write that much music for a game is just completely outrageous. Is that correct?
1: In the case of God of War, um, a lot of composers take pride that, hey, I can handle anything you throw my way. Right. And if they can't, you know, there's always somebody helping or they can get somebody to help or whatever it is. Sometimes it's a factor of how much music there is to write in a certain amount of time. If you look at the movie business where you do a 60, 90 minute score, three mm-hmm. weeks a month. Mm-hmm. you know three weeks or a month. So you have to be ready to be able to produce very quickly. Um, so I'm not quite sure whether that is the most important factor in splitting it off. Um, sometimes the most important factor for splitting off is because you bring something different to the whole soundscape of the game. Sure, but not necessarily can can you do it all the way, each person has their own bag of what they're really strong in,
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: and uh, if if a company has worked with you and understands what you're about, what's your voice, and that's what I always go, I always go to, what's your voice, what are you strong in, what is your personality mm-hmm, in your music? Mm-hmm. So if they understand that concept, then they, you know, they like a truly good producer won't necessarily use one actor in a film. You know, they'll use different actors because mm-hmm. there's different parts to be played. And if the different parts to be played musically, sometimes that works out really well. On the other hand, I know other music supervisors just want to have nothing to do with that. And the reason why they don't have anything to do with it—it's an extra pain in the neck.
0: about Batman because you got to score the cinematics those cinematics are some of the most um, captivating and creative and thought-provoking cinematics I've ever experienced in a video game I mean that must have just been so much fun to write for
1: uh, it, it certainly was I mean the first time that they sent me a cinematic um they said okay here come here comes one
0: what was it? Do you remember?
1: It was a Joker, believe with the warden or something. And I can't remember mm-hmm. the exact order on, on Asylum. Sure. But it had a Joker in it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm so used to seeing cinematics in block shape. Or just the polygons have just been, uh, you know, put on to the to the picture. So you can see some basic things that are walking around and doing. But you, Or sometimes they just look a little better, a little more polished than that. This mm-hmm. thing, first time I saw one of them, it was so inspiring ready to see it it wasn't absolutely rendered polished to the max but all the backgrounds were there all the coloring and all the lighting and all the intensity of the it was exactly as you said truly inspiring to see it coming right off Mm
0: -hmm. and sent to
1: me and this was probably eight months before the game actually was going to go and I thought wow if this (laughs) is where these guys are at this is amazing I mean you know, and then they sent another one, and yet another one, and another one. I kept going, this is... I mean, also the motion capture is phenomenal. These characters are so fluid in how the Joker moves and how Harley moves. It, mm-hmm. It's really quite something to see. It was so cool to, to be able to start with something that was already gave me an, a sense of what I should be scoring and how I should be scoring it without just shooting in the dark going, well, I guess this big, large blob here is a character. Right. Um, which character is that? <laughs> Right. Uh, and very often you get stuff that's supposed to be, okay, I'm trying to hit this point where he shoots, but you don't know when the shot was because there's nothing there.
0: Yeah, yep.
1: So you, you have to call back saying, by, by the way, what uh, symptom number, if we start from zero or one hour, what symptom number is that shot happening? Because I see the gun, but I don't know when he pulled the trigger. There's no trigger being pulled. What? You know.
0: <laughs> Did you have a, a favorite cinematic that you got to see and and write for. I mean, did you just have a scene that you just felt really really proud of or were you just happy with everything?
1: Um, you know that there's that's a great question. There's certain scenes that I like visually mm-hmm. that I thought were just like the coolest things to be able to write to because it's just visually it's like, wow. It looks great. Like the anything with the penguin in it. That guy just looks <laughs> phenomenal to yes. me. With you know, with the thing stuck in his eye that the, yep. the glass bottle monocle with the things you know with the cut and the side and all he just looks truly fantastic yes. um, Catwoman was pretty cool uh, Joker was great as he was the first time mm-hmm. uh, and then Clayface as he comes up uh, is really cool I would say that um, musically, though, it's a totally different story. Um, Sometimes you're forced to do what you think is the right thing to do for the picture, even though it isn't necessarily your greatest writing. You know, it isn't like, oh, this was terrific writing. Mm -hmm. Now, so surprisingly, some of the pieces that I like the most are things that aren't action-based. Just a nice cello line or uh, some nice string accompaniment, Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) stuff
1: that to me is not what I get to write all day. So I got a, you know, a real enjoyment to write that. And somebody else might be just the opposite. you know. Boy, I like that really pumping thing. Well, pumping thing I write a lot. What I don't get to write is, is some dramatic moments. I don't usually get asked to, to write drama. Mm-hmm. So for me, I would sit back and go, here, great. I get an opportunity to actually tell a story mm-hmm. through the music that's accompanying what I'm seeing instead of just bludging you over the head with you know full orchestra blasting I love uh, certain those uh, movies but they aren't necessarily my favorite tracks okay and then my favorite tracks could be something that I didn't necessarily love in the movie but I like what I did with it.
0: score to a game called Rise of Nightmares. and this is for the diehard top score fans they're going to know that I'll never play this game. it'll be way too scary. I would never be able to make it through it. but uh, I did listen to your score and that was enough. I actually had dreams about it last night. <laughs> oh I'm sorry. <laughs> no, but it's just really great music. So this, this game was um, developed by a Japanese company, so correct?
1: Yeah, it was Sega Japan.
0: Were there any kinds of cultural differences in what it is to be scared, what what it sounds like to be scared?
1: Yeah, th- that's fascinating because the Japanese and the culture of that is not necessarily as brutal as America is. As America has Saw, these movies Saw, mm-hmm. and c- et cetera, like that, where they're obviously going for the jugular Japan as as I was explained before I actually had a conversation with the the Japanese team Japan is not necessarily built that way to see blood gushing from a from a vein uh, it doesn't turn them on mm-hmm. it's not exactly their aesthetic so along with that their music doesn't also tend to be how would I put it, also go for the jugular Mm -hmm. as far as the music goes. It's always a little bit more lyrical Mm -hmm. or it's a little bit more abstract. The conversation we initially had was they um, had liked what I had written that was in an Elfman-like turn of of music, which to me...
0: Mm -hmm. Danny Elfman again. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, Danny Elfman. And it's really, at that time anyway, what they thought I had written that they liked to me was more in -in tongue-in-cheek scary than actually scary mm-hmm. <laughs> um, tongue-in-cheek to me was cute but it wasn't what I thought that they had wanted and I was initially told they wanted a scary soundtrack written by an American composer I said what is it that you think is scary to Americans and they went well you know you wrote something that we think is scary and I went well the thing I wrote with theremin and everything was written for a laugh hmm it mm-hmm. was not what I would call scary. Mm-hmm. And now we need to talk about what we think over here is scary. At that point, actually, I, I submitted about two or three tracks since that conversation. And they thought, you know, yeah, I've never heard anything quite like this. This is scary to us. And I said, <laughs> well, good. I think it's scary to you. I know it's scary to, to me. And mm-hmm. I've played it for a few people here. And they all go, well, yeah, this definitely um, makes my skin crawl. So mm-hmm. I went, okay, good. We're, we're there. And then... <laughs> At that point, it was just, you know, freestyle writing just kept on going, and uh, I was lucky enough to be able to actually master it myself, just move on, go right through the project, and have just one rewrite, which is basically unheard of. free reign to just go ahead and, and create it and I'm I'm actually very proud of that because in lieu of having an audio director who was not there um, oh, I was wow. just working with someone up in Sega America who was very good Sam Mullen is his name really a pleasure to work with him mm-hmm. and straight to the director of the game who was Japanese who I got to like very much and, and get along with him great it's a crossbreed between um, sci-fi synthesizers and uh, an orchestra, so it's a very interesting cross-section of those types of uh, sound sources. and I used to be a sound effects guy mm-hmm. and sound designer. so I you know I, I used everything that I could figure out and think of in my own terms and then put an orchestra to it. It's rather interesting and I really uh, I liked having the freedom to come up with this by myself, and that was the best part for me.
0: things that really stuck out to me about that score um, is there's a nice blend of scary music that is that kind of scary music that just completely creeps you out because it's really uh, subtle and quiet and there's sounds and you aren't really sure what's going on. But then there are those moments where you can feel the anxiety in the music there are so many different levels of scary and i felt all of them while i was listening to your music which i thought was great well the other thing that's interesting
1: too is that it takes place in and uh, well they call it eastern europe so to me that meant romania yep. and, and uh, initially they said well we would really like to have some gypsy music well believe it or not i used to play gypsy music so i know <laughs> what gypsy music is and i th- i you know i kind of i said it, it, you really don't want gypsy music you mm-hmm. want something that sounds like gypsy music, but you don't want gypsy music. Because if you do, mm-hmm. we're going to go, oh, you know, <laughs> and that is not what you want here. So they went, well, maybe not. So I said, what I would like to do is uh, Macedonian-style singing and um, Balkan and that kind of thing. I think that will sound so different.
0: It does, yeah. And it's
1: unusual because we have microtonalities, we have a nasal-style singing there, and yet it can be beautiful.
0: Mm-hmm. So when
1: you're in the forest... In this, this place that you got dropped off by a train It's a whole story, whatever But you get uh, the train um, collapses And you, you make it out just in time And then you're dropped off in a forest And I thought how cool it would be If you had music like this in the background You have this Macedonian, Balkan-style singing And that was done by a wonderful singer I work with is uh, Melissa Kaplan mm-hmm. And she sang those parts And it's just, to me, that's eerie in a beautiful way multiple voices singing it's like a Balkan choir and she's excellent at doing that kind of stuff and then uh, you know we kind of work together on that and what that creates to me is, is a, a beautiful tension so that the game isn't always about just you know smack crack you know ripping flesh type of music right, right. but something that's almost aesthetically beautiful but eerie at the same time
0: things that was interesting about it to me is that the the length of the tracks that you got to write for Batman and even for God of War seemed to be much longer than what you got to write for Rise of Nightmares. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Uh, Well Rise of Nightmares was truly my choice a lot of the time how long a track would play. Mm -hmm. Now the other thing is that uh when writing boss pieces or cinematic scoring for the other games that you mentioned, or God of War was a lot of uh, boss and a lot of ambient stuff. And Mm -hmm. those pieces have a tendency to, for me, they go up, tell a story. They kind of go up a mountain, come down slightly into a valley, come back up and finish, and they they tell their story. Mm -hmm. And in doing these particular tracks, I wanted to be okay if if we're in a situation where you need to be felt like you've just been grabbed hold by a zombie and he's you know trying to wrench you and kill you and whatever and you have to chop off the guy's head to kill him there isn't a moment there where i want to switch from uh you know going for blood on the music and then all of a sudden there's a little break because there really is no break there's um it's states very quick states that change so you know you're bludgeoning or you're killing one thing after the other or you're ripping out their, or chopping their heads or whatever disgusting things going on then the music should be appropriate for that and not take a break just keep going and keep going and keep going until it's done Mm -hmm. or it, it loops back again and if it does loop back it will still be on that same level of intensity yes if not we can switch to another piece i wrote that's not as intense
0: Gears again, back to back to Batman. Some of the boss battles of Batman, you got to work. Uh, you scored um, Mad Hatter, and you scored um, Raish Al Ghul. Yeah, Raish Al Ghul. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I can never say it right. Yeah, of course. Uh, Tell me about his music because that is very, very fascinating music. What you wrote for him specifically.
1: Oh, I'm glad you pointed that one out. That's well. That was interesting because uh, initially. When finding out what, how we're going to play ratio, it seemed to be... Because I actually got to do the boss battle, I think it was before the cinematic. So I did not see where the cinematic was leading us to. So that was an interesting slight predicament. Sure. Because sometimes you want to know, where am I coming out of the cinematic and into what piece am I going?
0: Right, and, absolutely. And,
1: yeah, Nick would always... you know, was a great guide through what we're going to be doing and where we're going. Um, but I hadn't written any theme yet. So, it was time to sit down and write a huge boss battle theme. So, in doing so, I figured okay, let's try and use something that um, is somewhat Arabic um, in, uh, in origin, and that'd be moving around, uh, you know, flat flat seconds and then, uh, you know, third to minor third and all this kind of stuff.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That's the typical kind of uh, mode. Of, and it's an Arabic mode. But I didn't go all the way to the Arabic mode and using, you know, tritones and slipping from the fifth to the flat fifth and all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So I didn't go all the way there. I sort of did. But the string section is really the one that is introducing that and going through that. Um, it's kind of like a, um, a thematic structure. That is not really thematic as far as the notes. It is a, kind of a, I guess, an Arabic movement in 6-8. So it continues through 6-8 most of the piece, of the, you know, shifts every once in a while to 5. But it's most of the time in 6. So that it kind of, in 6, is very much what a lot of Arabic music is written in. So I decided to keep 6-8, decided to keep the Arabic modal concept through the string line, and then it breaks in between two typical Batman-esque, uh, you know, mm-hmm. big horns playing, mm-hmm. and, and the strings are just moving at a pretty quick tempo at that point, and then it breaks that down to just this really intense um, string ostinato thing, uh, and then it comes back to that um, Arabic motif again and then finishes with a big, you know, big thing at the end, big flourish. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting when the orchestra played it because it really... Um, the conductor said okay take a break here take a look at this thing it it, it really sits unusually in your fingers mm-hmm. so look at this thing take a break figure it out and we'll come back in five after <laughs> <Half laughs> you've had a, a <laughs> chance to figure out how you're going to play it so it, it was interesting um, it took him a while to get all the accents where it needs to be because the accents is what lays the groundwork for almost a polyrhythmic feel oh, although sure. it is not really there it's all in six <laughs>
0: Tell me about when you were working as a sound designer and how you feel that that experience in your life prepared you for writing.
1: I, I was always interested in um, two aspects of sound that somewhat deviated from the just straight-ahead writing. One was synthesizers,
0: mm-hmm.
1: programming them endlessly. You know, when I had the time when I was younger and I could sit there all night long and no, nobody would care, mm-hmm. and I'd be up to 5 in the morning with a profit vs and sit there and program and program and in those days they only had like one compare button so i'd be taking the initial patch programming until i was you know the sun was coming up then hit the compare button and realize oh the original sound was better (laughs) (laughs) do this endlessly i don't know why but because i could you Mm -hmm. know but i did learn a lot of stuff about how uh, synthesizers worked and how they the sound went through in the signal path and all this. Mm-hmm. And actually, later on, it actually proved out to be very useful for me. And second of all, uh, when I came into Walt Disney Imagineering to work there for eight years, I came in initially as a sound designer. And then from that point, actually, I was an editor. And then I turned into a sound designer. Mm-hmm. And then there was this project called Disney Quest that came up. And Disney Quest was the first attempt by Disney to do anything that, it, that had the buzzword connected to it of virtual reality. Da, 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 okay. Dum. Virtual reality. And that was a big deal for everybody involved. And it was a great opportunity to actually start working in something that I had no idea what this was at mm-hmm. that time. Mm-hmm. So I ended up writing some scores for some of the games that was in this very large pavilion of virtual reality rides and shows. And um, I got to combine sound effects, and which I was doing there anyway at Imagineering, and music, which I started realizing that, gee, I I seem to be pretty good at this to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. So I was learning as I was going and building up my own studio as I was working there for over the years until I I got to a certain point where I started writing for certain little projects, and then the projects got a little bit bigger. And at some point after Disney Quest, I decided to just pretty much abandon the theme park world. I'll just go straight into video games because I was just fascinated by the total liberating feel that a video game gives you. Writing, etc., and and you feel there's there's some, you need to be passionate about what you're doing. So, in time, when I've been on symposiums and and, and have taught a few courses, etc., it's always been interesting to me is to try to tell composers or budding composers or even some composers that already know how to compose, but they're looking for something else to do. Mm-hmm. It's always interesting to me is to be able to have them understand, particularly younger guys and girls, that. You need to have your own sound. You need to have your own heart and passion and soul and what it is that you're composing. Some, sometimes you just can't. It's like if you're writing a Barbie thing, well, you know, spilling your guts into Barbie could be difficult. I don't know. So if you are fine, you're writing that kind of music or whatever it is, there has to be a truth in whatever it is you do. Otherwise, I think people can hear it. Yes. And if there's no conviction, and you know, if if you, it's easier said than done. If there's no conviction, what you're doing, go to the next project. Sure, in this day and age, with the economy being what it is, it's easy to just you know pontificate. But Mm -hmm. there is something about do the best you can within any given situation. Try to be true to yourself. Don't just copy somebody else's licks. Don't try and copy somebody else's style. Mm -hmm. Um, Once I was asked to write, can you can you do this like you know like um, John Williams? I went. Well, you know what? Why'd you ask John?
0: <laughs> nice.
1: You know, I know that you can't afford John, yeah. but I'm not John Williams. Yeah. I really am not. I can do something that sounds like John Williams, but it better sound like me. Right. Otherwise, I don't want to be known to do this particular thing. I don't want to copy somebody. A chameleon of all styles I don't want to be. I want to be me.
0: Right. Well, Ron, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you and to get to know you through your music as well. I've really appreciated uh, getting to hear what you've written and also living through what you've written, playing the games. It's just been really fun, so I appreciate it.
1: I really appreciate you asking me to do this interview.
0: been listening to top score from classical minnesota public radio i'm emily reese and our technical director is sam keenan we had additional technical support from audio professional johnny vince evans for more information about ron fish visit ronfishmusic.com send us your comments and questions at classicalmpr.org topscore and you can follow us on twitter and tumblr at top score podcast Seriously, I love hearing from you, and you always send great feedback, so keep it coming. And about that whole Twitter thing, my bosses pay attention to that quite closely, so the more followers we get at TopScore Podcast, the more support we're likely to receive so we can keep these episodes coming. Sunday Batman <laughs> you'll tell me though if I sound stupid you've heard Batman like this and you've heard Batman <laughs> I don't know if I can do it <laughs> oh I love Batman that dude what a good dude I bet you've heard Batman like no see that yeah. you like that you liked it okay Batman, Arkham City, just picked up a BAFTA nomination for Best Original Music. Hear all about it. Oh that breath was ridiculous. (laughs) Arkham City just picked up a BAFTA nomination for Best Original Music. Here, I can't do it. I keep thinking about that breath. Okay. Batman... Okay, I just got to think of Mass Effect 3 and Liara. My blue alien is waiting to rekindle my relationship with her. This is for you, Liara. <laughs> top Score, available at classicalmpr.org slash top score and on iTunes. I'm so sorry, dude. I'm just going to pull up a picture of Liara. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Okay. Let's see here. Where is she? Okay. And on iTunes. Nailed it.